Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Welcome back. So um, I'm not sure if you can, if my glasses are being too reflective, you can, it might be a little bit challenge here. So this is our fifth class of this, what causes suffering series course. Uh, and today, um, I want to talk a little bit about why uh, system science and uh, the Buddha's teachings seem convergent at this exactly this point of dependent origination and mutual causality. So I wanted to begin with a little bit of an activity. And so you might need a little something to write with. Um, if you have a piece of paper and something to write with, this will help you. Right in the middle of the page, in the middle page, think of something solid and real to you and put it in the center of the page. Something that is solid and real to you. Just name something that's solid and real to you. And now, oh, radiating out from that, you know what the neuron looks like, right? We're going to make a little mind map. Radiating out from that are branches. And on those branches, list the things that you can think of or know of that are causes and conditions for bringing that thing into being. So what are the causes and conditions for bringing that thing into being? Or the influences that created it? Just as many branches as you can imagine. upon which it depends. So if you're not sure, uh, imagine to yourself, oh, without that, this thing could not come into being. Sorry, Pe, oh, a yeah. question. The, the thing that you said center that is clear, something that they were working at this moment? Are you talking about something that is in conflict with us or? I don't no, know. no, something that's just any, anything, a car, a table. Okay. Anything that seems solid and real to you. And then whatever causes and conditions you can list as sort of radiating out like rays from a star or something, uh, branches that come out. If you've seen a neuron, you know, what that uh, little branches come out. And then there are sub branches sometimes. So maybe you have a cause or condition that has other causes and conditions that created it, that cause. And spoiler alert, there won't be just one branch. So on one branch, just put an arrow. So add a branch if you, if you need to add a branch and just put an arrow on it. This is the arrow of time. So you can create sub branches off that branch 
in which you list the stages in the life cycle of that thing, that very solid thing, real thing, um, from before it existed, then its birth, what, what, what did that look like? Um, and then it's maturing, coming into being, um, sustaining, and then what does that look like as it starts to decline or dissipate or disappear, um, ultimately disappearing altogether? So just those, what are those little radiating sub-branches that reflect the stages of existence of that thing? So that scale might be really large, like we're talking about a mountain and it might be really, really small, that time scale might be really, really small if we're talking about a mayfly, for example. <clears throat> the process is the same. Okay, we'll stop right here. Even you may still have more things that you can add to this little map, obviously. Um, but what I, I wanted to do is here, first of all, was there anything that surprised you about this? Any surprises for you in this mapping? You can raise your hand uh, with the reactions thing at the bottom or just... Yeah, Maria. just amazed at from one thing shall i say what i said sure if you want to um, I think, oh, oh is it still doing it yeah my thing was um, oh you might have to move can you hear that what i'm hearing that so, all right now, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I chose my teapot. And I was quite amazed that I've got over 50 branches coming off. <laughs> that one thing, it's like, I've never thought of my teapot in that way. It's just my teapot. I go to the shop, I get my teapot, and it's my teapot. And, you know, all the, the engineering and the, the design and the time and the transport and the you know, just there's so much that I was so surprised, you know, the organizing the workers, the advertising, the business plan that has to be in place. There's just extensive. So that that's that's what surprised me, just how extensive the it is to, to bring that into existence. Yeah. Yeah, it's always interesting that uh, sort of trying to trace back what all had to go into this. Mm. Yeah, it's wonderful. That's quite a map. <laughs> I think uh, Joan. Are we set up so people can unmute themselves? Yeah, I just was a little slow. Um, well, I was surprised. Mine was not a utilitarian thing. Mine was an object of art. And what I was surprised at was the human desires, emotions, needs that I saw that were uh, a part of, of this object. 
Yeah, brought it into being really. Yes, yeah, how it came into being, yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Suzanne. Um, Suzanne here. What struck me was I chose the chair that I'm sitting in. Mm -hmm. What struck me was all the unchair-like things that went into this chair. And, and that when I identified the people or the materials, it, I realized or I got that that's endless. There could, I could always go back to one more. One, that's right. And even more so, um, if you took one of the legs off, would it still be a chair? Oh, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, it wouldn't have the function of a chair. That's, yeah. But would it still be a chair? Would you be able to identify it as a chair? Oh, not, not as is, no. So, uh, and if all the legs were gone and the uh, back was gone and you just had the seat, would mm -hmm. you know it was a chair? Not necessarily. Right. Mm -hmm. It's an assemblage, but it makes a whole, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Non-chair things that make the chair. Now, Kim. You're muted still. <laughs> My first thought was nothing felt solid and real. And then I put um love. And then I put uh me. And that's where I did the stages of the life cycle. And I went back to the creation of Earth. And, and on from there. But then I started thinking about what was, um, what really was me as opposed to my body. You know, that it's not my body. So then I had problems. <laughs> so somehow love seems the most solid and real to me at this moment. Richie has his hand up, I see. Let's talk to Richie. What do you think? What surprised you? Oh, me, yeah. Um, I, I used my headphones because I get a lot of pleasure out of, out of those. And um, similar to Marie, I was thinking about how it was all made. And then it occurred to me it relied on, because I like listening to music, it relied on the musicians to make the music. If it, was, if it was nothing to play for them, there wouldn't be any use. So there was that too. And the internet as well. That's where I, I got them from. Um, so, yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting when we think, we're thinking in terms of causes and conditions. None of you has said anything that um, suggests a linear causal relationship, right? This is caused by this. Um, but instead this sort of network of causes and conditions that all have to come together somehow uh, for the thing to come into being. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this a lot um, and uh, this connection between the teachings of the Buddha around this and uh, systems thinking uh, and in contemporary times as Joanna Mason makes this 
parallel. Um, they have different aims, of course, um, but uh, since the Buddha's aim is liberation from suffering, and I think the compl complex systems theorists aim is to sort of understand the way the world works, but they have found parallels among all different kinds of complex systems from economies to cloud cover, to um, wildfires, to uh, frog ponds, um, uh, to the human body. So um, I think in our conventional thinking, we're a little bit um, hijacked by our grammar. So we deal in nouns. Uh, everything becomes a noun. Every process becomes a noun. Photosynthesis is a noun. Marriage is a noun. Um, and so this is a little bit deceiving, you know, because nouns have certain qualities and we can attribute those qualities to a noun, right? It's, it's tall, it's short, it's black, it's white. Um, and we assume that uh, these nouns are acted on by forces. And that's what causes them to do, uh, to behave or to act in certain ways. And those forces might be internal or external or both as uh, uh, we might uh, say when we talked about this earlier. Um, and that those um, nouns, noun thingness um, responds with resilience or fragility to those forces uh, and that we tend to turn people and places into nouns. And I, I, the way I think about this is a noun is a snapshot of processes in a moment of time. Uh, but we tend to think it's the thing itself, right? It represents the thing itself and everything is thingness. Things are concrete or abstract, like uh, Kim was talking about love, you know, and Suzanne was talking about the chair she's sitting on, concrete and abstract. Um, so, but we tend to think that these nouns have substance and they have a certain amount of permanence um, and we have divided them into objects and subjects and objects. Um, and those things have, uh, are bounded, right? We, we can say, well, this is me, I'm in this skin, this body is me, it has boundary um, and it defines me. Uh, but there's also, uh, we recognize that these things have certain vulnerabilities um, they're vulnerable to damage and to accident and to disease and harm and to normal uh, aging processes, right? Even a chair gets old, um, breaks down, gets useless, a teapot, you know, um, so, uh, so, and they're, uh, and they're nouns are vulnerable to death and disappearance. Like, where's my teapot? Um, so uh, we, we have responses to these nouns, these the thingness of things. Um, we, and we respond with our longing, we long for them, those things, um, or we have aversion to them. Uh, we uh, are subject to grasping as we want to own them or have them. Uh, we're also subject to fear uh, and anger and um, a kind of, um, see what I, what did I put? Um, oh yeah, um, I'm working from my mind map here. Um, hoarding and they're all here because they're um, brushing the mic peg. Maria, uh, your papers are brushing the mic, so we can't hear you. Just thought oh, I'd let you know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I don't want to block the the mic, but. 
So, um, so we have this, uh, all this reactivity around the thingness of things. Um, so we think of them as my brother, her car, our marriage, this city, society, um, drug addiction, poverty, happiness, uh, nature. We, we think of these as things, things you can have or not have, right? Things you can acquire, things you can give away. So we, we spend a lot of our time fantasizing or idealizing, getting, having, keeping, protecting, losing, fixing, grieving, dissatisfaction, and fantasizing. So we think this is just the way things are. This is the normal state of things. This is what people do. But it is also very cultural. So I often tell the story of my sister uh, who did her master's in anthropology in Japan, studying the um, differences between um, American mothers and Japanese mothers with their newborn babies. So American mothers take their babies outside and they say, that's a tree, a car, a man. And the Japanese mothers take their babies outside. They unwrap them and they say, feel, smell, look. So it's from the very beginning, a very different uh, cultivation of experience, right? Um, so, so it is a little bit culturally bound. So what are the alternatives? What's the alternative to that view, which is so hardwired into us now, you know, so we're so committed to it. Um, and this is where thinking in systems can be useful. Uh, we, um, I did a lot of research on complex adaptive systems and I, there's a lot of confusion about that term um, because complex systems are not necessarily complicated systems, complicated systems are systems where there are a lot of parts, but they're all understandable. So like a clock is a complicated system, but it's not a complex system. Its functions are a direct result of the way its parts work together. Complex systems in, instead uh, have unpredictable trajectories. They are um, characterized not as collections of things, but as processes and flows of energy and information, resources and wastes. So uh, they're dynamic and um, they're adaptive. So they respond to feedback and they change in response to their environment. They're emergent because they're arising and in their arising, uh, different levels of development or different levels of organization have very different features. So there's no way to understand a complex system by breaking it down to its component parts. Um, so you cannot understand the workings of a frog pond by um, separating out the water, the frogs, the birds, the insects. There's no way to understand it because everything is in the relational processes. So, uh, so there's a certain robustness in complex adaptive systems that's due to their diversity and um, that is, reduces their vulnerability. They, so they, they have much more resilience and they're able to repair and heal and renew. Human systems are complex adaptive systems. They are not mechanical systems like an auto. 
that when it breaks down, you take it into the shop and they fix the part that's broken. Um, so the other feature of complex systems is that disturbances, the effects of disturbances are unpredictable. And what I mean by that is they are not dependent on the size of the disturbance. In a complex adaptive system, a tiny disturbance might have huge effects. Um, so a match can set off a forest fire that destroys millions of acres, right? On the other hand, a huge effect might, a huge disturbance might have minimal effect on the system and the system might be very well able to just absorb it. So, um, so this is another feature of complex adaptive system. And, and another uh, very important way to understand these complex adapt adaptive systems is that they're based on relationality. So the number of things or the type of things, uh, it's relationality, which means that um, boundaries in, in uh, complex adaptive systems are permeable so that the organism, whatever it is, can respond to its environment and adapt so that it can take in information about the environment and so that it can adapt to it. Um, the the relationship, relationality is characterized by mutuality, which may be a mutuality of aversion or it may be a mutuality of harmony or maybe a mutuality of synergy, but it's, it has to do with this relational quality. Um, and that leads to um, activity that is um, uh, in coordination um, and that's distributed across the system. So in the human body, we have a circulatory system. Um, the, um, the circulatory system is also dependent on other systems in the body, the, the um, respiratory system, uh, the, the cardiovascular system. Uh, so these systems are, have subsystems within them that are smaller systems. And those smaller systems are characteristically different from the larger system, right? So uh, a heart is different from a whole being, a whole human being. Um, so the characteristic across the, hold on a second, Joel. Um, oh, okay, so Joel has asked, beyond the Japanese example, is the nouning process in most languages, is there a language that turns processes into nouns less than others? Yes, I'm glad you asked that. There are actually Native American languages in which there are no nouns. Um, everything is a process. So I would imagine that, you know, we think of an apple, but for in that language, there would be apple eating, there'd be apple planting, there'd be, apple, you know, like it'd be appling. Um, and that appling would have these characteristics, but it would be a process. Um, okay, so I, I'm gonna have to fix this little, I, I'm working from a little mind map here. And so I, I don't wanna to make too much noise, but, uh, but I wanna make sure that I, that I include things. So I, um, down here. Um, so I wanted to, in, in terms of relationality, I think this is so important to know um, that things are in this view are networks of relationships. 
and sub-relationships, larger relationships, relationships to a larger whole. And that's part of what you were mapping when you were mapping these causes and conditions for the things. Um, so let's see. Um, so Christopher Alexander talks about this and he's a very, very famous architect. And uh, some of you have heard this quote before, but it's about this exact thing. And we, we tend to think of architecture as composed of elements, right? That are solid, a door, a roof, a wall, a window. He says, it's certainly not enough merely to say that every pattern of events resides in space. So every activity is in space somehow. That is obvious and not very interesting. What we want to know is just how the structure of the space supports the patterns of events it does in such a way that if we change the structure of the space, we shall be able to predict what kinds of changes in the patterns of events this change will generate. In short, we want a theory which presents the interaction of the space and the events in a clear and unambiguous way. And we've had a graphic example of this, right? In the pandemic, people were, you know, um, sort of expelled from the spaces that they had habitually gathered in, right? And they had to go into a new medium, Zoom, in order to connect with each other. Uh, and that changed the patterns of activities, right? Uh, quite dramatically for people. So further, he says, it's very puzzling to realize that the elements, which seem like elementary building blocks, keep varying and are different every time that they occur. For among the endless repetition of elements, we see almost endless variation. Each church has a slightly different nave. The aisles are different. The west door is different. And in the nave, the various bays are usually different. The individual columns are different. Each vault has slightly different ribs. Each window has a slightly different tracery and different glass. <clears throat> so yet somehow we know, right? If the elements are different every time that they occur, evidently then it cannot be the elements themselves which are repeating in a building or a town. These so-called elements cannot be the ultimate atomic constituents of space. Since every church is different, the so-called element we call church is not constant at all. Giving it a name only deepens the puzzle. If every church is different, what is it that remains the same from church to church that we call church? This is what I was asking Suzanne about. If we remove a leg, is it still a chair, right? Um, let us therefore look more carefully at the structure of the space from which a building or a town is made to find out what it really is that is repeating there. We may notice first that over and above the elements, there are relationships between the elements which keep repeating too, just as the elements themselves repeat. Beyond its elements, each church, each building is defined by certain patterns of relationships among the elements. When we look closer, we realize that these relationships are not extra, but necessary to the elements, indeed a part of them. When we look closer still, we realize that even this view is not very accurate. For it is not merely true that the relationships are attached to the elements, the fact is that the elements themselves 
are patterns of relationships. For once we recognize that much of what we think of as an element, in fact, lies in the pattern of relationships between this thing and the things in the world around it, we then come to the second even greater realization that the so-called element is itself nothing but a myth. And that indeed, the element itself is not just embedded in a pattern of relationships, but is itself entirely a pattern of relationships and nothing else. And finally, the things which seem like elements dissolve and leave a fabric of relationships behind, which is the stuff that actually repeats itself and gives the structure to a building or a town. So I thought this was such a um, beautiful expression of the sort of dissolving of the solidity that we carry in our minds um, attached to objects. It's certainly true for people. It's true for um, all of the things that we think of or we take of as concrete and, and certainly for all of the things that we take as abstract. I was thinking about this in terms of something we think of as an object, marriage, um, for example, and um, how we think of it in uh, objective terms rather than as a dynamic set of dynamic processes flowing together. So we, we tend to think um, uh, of it as healthy, like a house plant is healthy and thriving and working um, like a car would be working. It's going along, it's functioning um, or ailing, in which case we have to fix it um, or we have to adapt somehow to it uh, or we have to repair or leave it, but any, in any event has problems. And those problems are a function of it being a thing. Um, it, we also think of it, tend to think of it in terms of a place sometimes that we're either in or out of, we're either in marriage or not in marriage. Um, uh, and that sometimes it's a place of confinement. Sometimes it's a cozy place. Sometimes it's a refuge, um, that there's safety there, um, there there's care. Uh, in that place. So again, it's still thinking of it as a certain thing. When we think of it as an ecosystem, a marriage, um, it's a system of systems that are interdependent processes that are dynamic um, and that, uh, that there are flows that keep um, finding their balance. Um, that means not fixed, but improvisational in response to changes in the environment. So it involves systems of affection and trust and belonging and care. Um, that's one whole system, that trust and care system. Um, systems of development, the change over time. So the way your um, relationship is in the beginning and the way it evolves and what, what, how it develops and what changes and shapes it. There's a kind of development there. Um, there are functions of household management. That's a whole system of its own, which, um, which is, you know, financial, physical, um, physical plant, heating, cooling, um, plumbing, cleaning, maintaining, all these things are aspects, right, of uh, that part of the system. Functional, they're functional parts of that um, household management system of feeding people and clothing them and having places for them to sleep. Um, and then there are aesthetic functions um, that are part of that, uh, the quality of that system, household system. There's a whole system of children, child care. Yes, we have children. No, we don't have children. Now, how, how that gets decided, um, the dynamic 
changes that happen in the relationship as a function of children coming into it. Um, and the world system, the whole world system that children bring into being for parents, um, their, the, the concern for their ongoing well-being, their health and safety, um, yep, and their comfort and their development and their care, and that never, ever ends. Um, so then there's also uh, part of that um, marriage system are the friends, right? Um, and the kind of dynamic involvement, engagement in the lives of our friends and, uh, and how that unfolds and how that impacts our own relationship. Um, and then there's the whole world of work, which is another system. And there's the internal work, household work, childcare work, work that is done internally. There's external work, which is career as a citizen, um, as a volunteer, but the work that is, uh, that, that's externally expressed. There's a whole system of values. Um, so those values are constantly being negotiated um, and there are stresses that happen when there are big differences in the values where there's harmony because the values are congruent and going in the same direction. Um, so that means that there's also systems of conflicts, how they get managed, um, what, uh, what the dynamics of them are, what the patterns of them are, uh, ways of relating when there's uh, some kind of difficulty. So then there's, all of this is situated within this larger world systems, um, climate and environment, uh, societal systems from racism to highways, uh, commerce, um, and, um, and the, this larger picture that we're all situated in, right? This ongoing dynamic change, political systems. So when we think of something like our marriage, um, it, it, there's no need to be claustrophobic about it. It has all these branches and, all, and each of them impacts the others. So problems with a child impacts the financial system, the psychological well-being, the uh, workload shifting often. Um, so, uh, so, so all of them are sensitive and attuned to all of the other systems, right? The plumbing goes out, then that's gonna cause problems in other systems, financial systems and so forth. So, so we can see that these, um, these, even a, a, an abstract concept like marriage has all these dependencies, many of them in the concrete world, but also some of them quite abstract. Um, so, um, so we know from quantum physics anyway, that it's impossible to determine the speed and the location at the same time of any particle. And bless their little hearts, they keep looking for more particles, you know, they've got muons and quarks and they're looking for even smaller particles, but always looking for particles. And every place they look, the smaller they get, they just find open space and vibration. Ultimately, that's all there is. So this is uh, dynamic um, and, um, and we can see even in this dynamic quantum flux, there's this, you know, this, uh, longing and this need to name objects. Um, and, and it's ultimately, I think, is going to be um, proved to be a completely fruitless effort to keep, um, you know, parsing these objects down smaller and smaller. And then there's more space, it's more open space and vibration. So this is um, well uh, articulated in our Heart Sutra, right? Um, 
which I think is um, easy to misunderstand. So it's talking about disappearances of named objective boundaries. And that it's pointing to the artifact of language, which is creates for, um, uh, for particular purposes, the concept of a nose, you know? So we, we pretty much know we can point to our nose, but we probably can't find the exact boundaries of our nose, right? Where, where does the nose end and the rest of the face begin? It's, um, it's very, very um, uh, a, a sort of ephemeral, um, even though it seems like nothing could be more solid than your own body, right? Nothing could be more real, more solid, more tangible. But what the Heart Sutra is really talking about is the disappearance of thingness that happens when we settle into complete stillness, this samadhi um, that uh, um, Avalokiteshvara was coursing in uh, when he delivered this, um, this sutra. So that samadhi is this deep state of completely clear, lucid mind and awareness. So we find this in meditation from time to time when we are really established in meditation in a way that our stillness has invited that settling out of discursive thinking and open a space, a kind of luminous space, then we are um, in the midst of the disappearance of the thingness of things, right? Um, this is what we experience, but we experience it in an embodied way. It's not an intellectual understanding. This is what the, um, the Buddha was really um, pointing to. And so this mindfulness of the body, when we're doing practicing mindfulness of the body, sooner or later, the body is going to disappear in your awareness, even though you're clearly still embodied. You're still breathing. You're, you're not, you know, fainting. So, so yes, this disappearance um, of the thingness of things is what the Heart Sutra is pointing to, not the, dis not the non-existence of those things. You know, the chair that Suzanne's sitting on is certainly a chair. She certainly can sit on it. It's not empty space. It's not the disappearance of the, the existence or the denial of the existence of the things. It's just... Um, uh, I think you would characterize it as things are not what you think. So, as I said, we have this snapshot in time of apparent solidity. And we uh, take that as permanent. So, but the Buddha was not concerned with the disappearance of things or some sort of metaphysical experience or transcendent experience of uh, unity consciousness or whatever, he was really, really concerned about human suffering. And um, that suffering is painful and real. When people are suffering, there's no point in telling them, well, this isn't really real. This is a construct of your mind or this. But <clears throat> it does have this uh, quality. So it's, we're talking about the whole range from mild unease to dying. You know, the whole range of human dissatisfaction, things that we, um, that we don't want, um, things that make us unhappy. So this term dukkha that we use all the time as if it's a noun is not a noun. 
It's an adjective. It describes a quality of experiencing. So we're experiencing something as painful. We're experiencing something as distasteful. We're experiencing something as disgusting. It's an, it's an adjective. It's un, something is unsatisfactory or it's stressful or it's a struggle. The, um, the adjective form of dukkha characterizes the quality of that experience. Um, never satisfying, never satisfactory. Um, so, so the Buddha was primarily concerned with causes, you know. Um, we tend to look at the what for causes, right? My job is causing my suffering or, um, you know, my broken arm is causing my suffering. And it, we, so again, we resort to thingness when really our suffering is a process and it's immersed in a process. Joel? You're muted. I'm just waving my broken arm. Oh, you're just waving it. Yeah, your broken arm is a good example, right? Yes. Um, so as I was saying, so the Buddha was concerned with the causes and conditions of suffering. What's propping it up? What's keeping it in place? Without which, um, without what would it not come into being? So, um, yeah, so let's see here. Um, so this now is pretty widespread, the understanding of the way uh, complex systems can inform our thinking about so many things. Um, but when we think about suffering, we think, well, um, I just have to stop this particular cause and I won't suffer anymore. So if, of course, if you're a parent, that's not workable. You can't really get rid of your child, right? Because your child is causing you suffering. Um, and it's not the child that's the cause of the suffering. It's a whole raft of things, a whole array of other systems and processes that are wrapped into that relationship called my child. So that 12-fold chain that we talked about last time um, that the Buddha taught, he taught sometimes as a 10-fold chain. He taught sometimes in slightly different order from that. So the order is not so important as the relationships among those things. I think of them as like um, a kind of um, flows um, that flow, causes and conditions that give rise to the whole mass of dukkha, um, the whole unsatisfactoriness. Um, the, these flows are uh, shaped by our craving, our desires, our longing, our aversions, um, and even our ignorance. So this is what the Buddha wanted to understand is the nature of the relationship in which when this arises, that arises. If this ceases, that ceases. So it's a simple kind of formulation, but that's what he was that was what he was really after. And he saw these relationships among uh, grasping, craving, consciousness, sense contact, um, and what arises out of the, those processes. So it's, it's wise to think of each of those elements that he identifies not as a thing, but as a process, right? the process of craving, um, which is a function of some sense contact that as you see something, you hear something, you taste something that um, 
to which we have a reaction. And that reaction we, we characterize through the feelings of is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, right? And out of that, we begin to craft the whole mechanism of longing, craving. Um, so we there a thirst is created. That's the first thing. And as I said, I think of thirst as quite natural. Um, we become thirsty when we need a drink, um, but then we attach craving um, to that thirst, and that's when we start grasping. And there's where we start to begin to create um, the the. Um, place of suffering, the place in the whole mass of causes and conditions where we can make an intervention. That's where we really, yeah, Suzanne. You're muted. So uh, there's something I'm not quite getting, Peg, about this last piece you said. How is that not cause and effect? So for example, if if somebody is hitting me and I don't like it and the other person stops, so that ceases, and then I'm, then then I go into neutral, let's say. So how, how is, I don't quite get how that is not cause and effect of my experience. Well, we've assigned a, you know very simple formulation to that, right? Mm -hmm. So the so there's a lot. Um, there's a lot beyond that of um, what is um, the cause and condition of the hitting, right? It's completely out of the blue at a bus stop, you know? So um, is it a person with mental illness, a person coming out of, you know, a brutal background, whatever, you know? Like there are causes and conditions for that happening, but they're not simple, okay. right? Uh -huh. And your response, the causes and conditions for your response are in your prior experience, you know, you know, in all um, in all that you've learned and trained in, for example. I sometimes tell the story about the woman who was carjacked. And so she's in stopped in traffic and um, a man jumped into the passenger side of her car and he had a knife and he said to her, give me your car keys. And her, the thought that went through her head, you can imagine this, right? You're in a car, you're in traffic, you're not paying that much attention it's in traffic. A man jumps into your car, holds a knife to you and says, give me your car keys. She immediately thought to herself, it's almost Christmas time, it's cold out. He is probably trying to get into prison so that he can be warm and have food and, you know, Probably say that's that's her immediate thought, um, and um, uh, I can I can feel that he's just trying just probably trying to get himself into a safe berth, right? She opens her car window and throws the keys out into the traffic and steps out. So you know, like there's a whole complex of things there. She was a social worker. She was already thinking about what kind of background he must have that would make him so desperate. And, um, and so I, I, I think you think about all these causes and conditions converge in this incident, which we could say might say have a simple cause and effect, but doesn't really, right? It's all conditioned. Yeah. And there are numerous causes and conditions that 
create the reaction that you have, the response that you have. Yeah. Yeah. So even when the incident itself seems simple, there's all these flows that have to come together right in that moment. And that moment is just a snapshot. We take a snapshot and we say, well, this is what caused it. It's this thing. Because this is in the frame, <laughs> right? Yeah, Kim knows about this. What's in the frame and what's not in the frame, right? Um, so, yeah, so I think this is uh, such a good example, Suzanne, um, of something that appears to have a linear cause and effect. Because that's how we have been trained to think. And so we default to that mode. So it's worth the um, experiment to keep looking, you know, see if you can identify the processes, not the things, the processes um, as a way of understanding better the sources of suffering. So oftentimes there's a complex mix of societal processes and, you know, um, and individual processes, internal psychodynamic processes and relational processes between. Um, so, um, so it's very, very interesting. Um, many years ago, there was a serial killer who, um, when they talked to him, he confessed readily than when they caught him. And um, he said, well, there wasn't really any problem because I only ever went where the doors were unlocked and therefore they had invited me in. I said, oh, <laughs> you know, this disordered thinking um, was part of a, a much larger process, right? So, um, yeah, so I think this is um, our, our challenge as, um, as human beings, I always say, um, is to recognize these uh, properties of the complex adaptive systems we are and are immersed in um, and the relationships that they entail. So at any moment, our embodiment is the product of um, a kind of uh, history, personal history, larger societal history, right? Plus our experience and how we've interpreted it. So uh, the Tibetans talk about this as a mind stream, that there's a, a a large, you know, vast, vast mind stream. And it's the, the sort of process of all of humanity's thoughts. And, uh, and we ourselves have drunk from the mind stream, right? That's how we have a lot of ideas. We know who Martin Luther King Jr. is, we know who Shakespeare is, we know what their mind streams are like all of that that we have encountered or been taught or learned in school, um, all of the life experiences that we've had that have been a function of meeting people and talking to people and learning from them, um, they're all part of our own mind stream and our unique experiences contribute to the quality of mind stream that is our own, that's unique to us and that we join into the larger mind stream as we have conversations with people as we teach, as we make works of art, um, we're uh, also contributing to the mind stream. And so we know that this is not entirely benevolent because we know that the mind streams of Hitler and white supremacists and 
uh, hateful people are also part of the mind stream. If I talk to you about um, some brutal dictator, you understand this is part of the mind stream is understanding that. Um, and, uh, and so what we're looking at is this flow where um, these mind streams converge and they also diverge off and that divergence might um, result in some novelty and creativity um, or might resolve in some sort of little dissipation, you know, nothing sort of comes of that divergence. Um, or they might represent um, a divergence that creates a lot more pain and suffering. But these mind streams, I think this is kind of an interesting way to think about it and that, um, and that our concern in practice is not to be contributing a lot of pollutants to the mind stream, right? So misinformation is a pollutant, um, uh, hatred is a pollutant, all of the hindrances are pollutants and uh, pollute the mind stream. And not just your own, but our shared mind stream. So it's like uh, dumping a lot of um, toxic waste into a beautiful river. So how do we do this? Um, how do we clarify our mind stream in a way that in, sort of ensures that the process is not contributing to suffering, is not contributing to harm? I don't think there's um, many ways that we can clarify our mind with, except through uh, meditation that is becoming very still and very quiet so that we can see what's really going on. Um, and through careful observation and through a kind of investigation, which is always a part of our practice. And we can investigate the validity of the Buddha's teachings in our experience. Um, we can investigate whether uh, anything that we encounter um, can be evaluated according to the criteria the Buddha set up. And the criteria are um, when they, when his followers asked him, should we follow these teachers or are these teachers good teachers? He said, you should always just stop and consider um, whether the teachings are wholesome, contribute to the well-being of yourself or others, lead to happiness, would be approved by the wise, or lead to liberation. So you're looking at those are the criteria. Um, so investigation is how we discover whether something is um, mapping on to those criteria. So we, and, and we cultivate wisdom, which is um, helped enormously uh, by our collective wisdom when we come together, uh, by the teachings of wise teachers, uh, and by our own experience where we test and verify those teachings for ourselves. It's extremely important. So, um, so complex systems and uh, Buddhist teachings have different aims, as I said. One is uh, sort of the aim of science, which is always to explain, predict, or control, um, and uh, which um, gauges its success on uh, how, how closely it can explain, predict, or control. Uh, and so there's one more component piece, which is assessment. So we want to be able to explain something so that we can predict how to beha behave or what might happen or 
um, and then so that we can control for it. And this, you know, this goes from uh, for all kinds of systems, including uh, we use a lot of um, uh, very sophisticated tools now to predict the weather because it has great implications. And if we predict the weather, then we can control conditions on the ground to deal with the weather conditions. This is, of course, is a great problem in climate change because we're doing a very good job of uh, explaining climate change, a very good job of predicting climate change and a very terrible job of controlling our behavior so that we can either mitigate or uh, survive climate change. <clears throat> so, uh, but this is, the, this is the science goal and the, um, what's called the soteriological goal of the Buddha's teachings, that is this, um, the saving uh, um, salvation goal is the liberation of beings from suffering. So less concerned with explaining things, predicting things or controlling things and much more with how we meet suffering and how we support others in meeting suffering when they're meeting suffering. So that's the, um, uh, the way I've thought about it. In my dissertation, I wrote about complex adaptive systems with respect to teaching writing and, um, and how writers write. And there were four attributes of complex systems that I talked about, um, that they were, first of all, distributed. So systems are distributed. That's why we don't have a single cause and effect relationship, right? Um, they're distributed across space, across time. Um, the internet was a good kind of metaphor for that. Um, they're embodied, that is, they're, they have embodiment. So we can talk about love all we want to, but we always end up having to turn to ex embodied examples. Um, and there's a very, very, very fine short story by Raymond Carver called What We Talk About When We Talk of Love. Um, that's all about that, uh, the, that embodiment. Um, they're uh, emergent, that is, uh, um, they're self-organizing and they emerge, complex adaptive systems, in response to the environments constantly changing. So the properties as they emerge are quite different from the properties, the initial starting conditions. You take a tadpole, it starts as a frog's egg, right? And then becomes a tadpole. A tadpole doesn't look very much like a frog. Um, all, it's, all of its systems are going to be emerging in the process of its growth and development. Um, so that's part of what distinguishes complex adaptive systems. And if something changes in the developmental stages, the, um, the growth and development will be quite different. So if an egg splits in the womb, you get twins. Um, so, uh, so this is the... Um, the quality of complex adaptive systems. Uh, the last um, attribute I talked about was an action. So it's activity, it's ongoing activity. Uh, complex adaptive systems are constantly actively uh, interacting with the environment, taking, process, taking in information, uh, using it as feedback, feedback into the system, it adapts and changes in response to the feedback. <clears throat> it learns, develops, and grows in response to feedback from the environment and internal conditions. So those were the four attributes I talked about. Um, 
that our properties of complex adaptive systems that are not properties really of simple systems or even complicated systems. Nobody talks about a watch that grows, right? Um, or uh, you know, a car that somehow um, is embodied in, uh, in um, some complex way that responds. So now they're, what they're trying to do is build into things like cars that responsive function. It still doesn't make them complex and they're still subject to very, it's just very mechanical system. So it's interesting to me that our models of the universe have changed as a function of our sort of technological understanding. So, um, so when uh, instruments for timekeeping became um, uh, commonplace, then we began talking about the universe as a clockwork system, which made it seem very mechanistic, right? Um, and now um, there more, uh, there's more discussion of things as networks. Um, it's still, there's still a tendency to make the network a thing, um, which is uh, again, a little bit of a misunderstanding. There's this, the, these flows of energy and activity, information and resources across all of the systems that we're talking about. And the relationships define the sort of um, paths and directions of those flows. When we look in this way, everything's kind of miraculous. I mean, it's um, kind of amazing that everything that works, works um, because of this complex set of causes and conditions that need to be continuously operating um, as systems sort of function. So that's everything from vast, vast political systems, which are constantly trying to um, find a place of stabilization. They're never going to acquire the status of a thing. That's never gonna happen. So um, sometimes we, it's, I, it, I hear now, you know, people talking about after the pandemic, they want things to go back to normal. And for them, that's a state of being, right? That's a sort of a fixed state of being um, that looks exactly like what they were familiar with, what they were used to before the pandemic. So they're gonna work really, really hard to reconstruct that state of being. Um, you go to the movies with a friend, you go out to lunch, uh, you know, um, but things have been shaken to their very foundations. And any um, idea that things will go back to being the way they were is quite illusional. Um, and it would be a shame too, because it would mean we had missed an incredible opportunity to understand more about how the systems function uh, to create so much suffering in our society or how systems um, function globally to do so much damage to the environment. So, or how we um, have created a, a, you know, healthcare systems that are not serving what they ought to be serving. So there, uh, all of the issues that we have now are systemic. None of them are individual, like caused by a thing. You may say, well, the pandemic is caused by a virus. It's not caused by a virus. Um, that's, that's completely erroneous thinking. Um, but there is this viral load that's constantly in motion, constantly evolving and our body's responses to that viral load. And those are complex and different in different individuals. Some people have a little bit of a sniffle, other people are taken down and die. So, um, so obviously it's not a single thing which has a linear effect. 
Um, and then there, the ways that that, that uh, viral load has reconfigured social structures and social dynamics. Again, systemic effects. But I think people are readier now to understand the world in terms of system effects than they have been um, in the earlier technological days when it was just like, put a bridge over that river um, and the thingness of everything was um, uh, to be appropriated and either consumed or exploited or used in some way as a thing. Um, now we realize river systems uh, are a kind of uh, lifeblood of the planet. And we're starting to sort of slowly starting to get the idea that we have to think in terms of systems. And the Buddhist looking at causes and conditions of suffering, um, he was really looking at systemic effects. Um, and they, and so this 12-fold um, sort of uh, schematic that he provides is not about 12 things that happen really fast together or um, that unfold over time or they're really about processes. And when you look closer, you can see they're all, it's all processes. Um, the sense contact between a sense organ and something out in the world, that sense contact is a process. And it, it, it involves not just the sense organ, but also the conveyance to the brain, the nerve system, and then the brain's map of interpreting what that means, its responsive function, what has to happen, its signals to the nervous system, to the muscles, to the um, heart rate, all of those things. So, um, so in each of those, what we have is 12 uh, components of uh, the causes and conditions of suffering, uh, these are really interdependent processes that are related to each other. Does that make sense? I wanna leave uh, enough time now for people to ask any questions they have about this, um, this formulation. I know it's a lot. Yeah, Sandra. Uh, I have, thank you so much for all this. Um, I'm really, when you're talking about the human body, the systems, which I'm very familiar with that. So to extrapolate that as the systems, um, like this is symbiosis, homeostasis, and balance. So that makes a lot of sense for me. Like something is no good, everything starts falling apart. Yeah. Uh, but I, I have a question. So how do you describe, you know, when you have an event like, um, and for example, that you you want to go to the road and happened to me a couple of times and I want to drive and for some reason got distracted and I go like 30 minutes later and it was a crash accident. And in that moment I say, oh, if I will be go out in that moment, I will be part of that crash accident. So and that kind of events, how do you describe those events that happen like that? Well, there are a confluence of things, right? Mm -hmm. There, um, there's always a confluence of things. Um, so people are distracted. Um, why are they distracted? They're distracted because they're, they just found out that their daughter is on drugs or they just got a bad medical diagnosis or, you know, like, uh, or they're just thinking about their work and not paying attention to where they're driving or, you know, you're, so that's one factor. Um, no, but, but I, I, sorry, but I'm not asking the person that has the accident. It's like in my case, I just wanted to go to the road in a moment and, 
and I got distracted doing something and just leaving home a little later. And that prevented me to be in that crash accident that was happening. Okay. Well, as far as you know, I mean, it might not have happened. Um, many, many times, you know, we have moments of distraction, nothing happens. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is, uh, and the Buddha talked about this when one of the, his followers said, you know, is my suffering all created by my past karma? And um, the Buddha said, certainly not. There are accidents and there are malign intentions of others that are not part of your karma. So this is an accident. Um, it, the, the, the useful thing about it is it's cautionary, right? So you think, oh, I could have been in that accident, right? Um, and it causes us to pay attention. I think that's sort of the function. It causes us to pay a little bit attention that we need to be mindful when we're driving. But as to, as to when or where those things might happen, many, 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 many times we have been driving in, um, in a frame of mind or in a way that could easily have caused an accident um, or a bicycle could have run out in front of us or, you know, um, and it hasn't happened, fortunately, but other times you get caught. It's, but it's a good point for reflection because you realize how many things, since so many people are driving around various states of distraction, how many things have to converge in order for it to result in an accident, right? <clears throat> yeah. So it, it's, um, but it is a caution. So it reminds us, oh, this, uh, it's always possible. Yeah. Joan. You're muted, I think. There you go. I was going along. Thank you very much. A lot of information to take in. I was following along and then I realized I'm in the middle of a very difficult situation with my older son who's 57 years old, doesn't live anywhere near me and doesn't want me to talk to him anymore because we had a big problem. And I think I can sit and the rest of it seems to be out of control. I'd like to have a book or something that tells me what to do next. Well, um, out of our control is sort of the condition of everything, really. Mm -hmm. um, but what you can do is you can manage your own expectations. Mm -hmm. Understand this is the way things are right now. Establish an openness. Um, you can convey that. I, you know, I am happy to talk to you anytime. Mm -hmm. And that's then it's really um, his motive. So in parenting, this is the hardest thing, I think, from the time they're three years old to recognize they have their own motives and they're gonna pursue their own paths. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, to me, it's the bittersweet part of parenting. Mm -hmm. is it, and, and the unfair part of the job that we fall in love with them and we have to continuously be preparing them to be independent of us. It's so unfair. Mm -hmm. Well, one time I said to one of my children, we don't have, we don't know how much time we have left to live. 
They don't either. No, I mean, so what do we want to do with the time we have? Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, it's, it, I thought, gee, I'd sure like to have the next steps right planted in front of me because I don't know what to do. Well, I think you have the wisdom, first of all, to recognize you're not in control of this. And second of all, I don't know what to do. I mean, and it's the, that's exactly what I would say to my son in those circumstances. I don't know what to do. I love you. I, I care about you. I want you to be well. And I don't know what to do now. Well, this was certainly an auspicious day to just be listening in. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I hope that, you know, and often, you know, they come around, they realize they've been unreasonable or they long for that connection themselves. But if they don't long for that connection themselves, there's no way you can manufacture it. So that's why I say it depends on their motive. And that's, it's a really big challenge, I think, in parenting. Must we long for that connection with them so much. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I, I said to Flynn at one point, uh, I probably could, um, I probably could guilt my son into calling me more often. But I don't, it's not that I want him to call me more often. I want him to want to call me. And that I can't control. Anyone else? Richie, you look like you're about to say something. Uh, <clears throat> I was just thinking, how, how, does, how do you use this knowledge of um, dependent origination to, in the practice and um, how to liberate yourself? Um... Yeah, I think um, there's a big difference between understanding it conceptually, getting it, you know, like conceptually and living from that place that knows it. Um, and it does free you from a lot of expectations uh, because a lot of our expectations are associated with linear cause and effect. If I do X, I will get Y. If I meditate, I will get calm. Um, that's a you know, typical kind of example. Or if I'm nice to this other person, they, they should be nice to me. You know? So we, we're, it's a setup. Now, linear thinking is a setup. Um, and um, probably a recipe for disappointment and unhappiness um, and suffering. So part of it is relinquishing that and looking at the point, the pain point where the craving is um, and uh, discovering that when we are able to relinquish that craving, which isn't easy, but when we're able to relinquish it, there's a kind of freedom in it, which to some parts of our mind feels like a loss because there are parts of our mind that are very invested in craving. I mean, that's how we define who we are, what it is that we crave, right? Yeah. Right now, it's the start of summer. So here in Wilmette is a little tiny, very, very ancient ice cream store where they make the ice cream from scratch from seasonal ingredients. So now it's peach ice cream, about which I dream the rest of the year. Just May to September, we have peach ice cream. It's fresh peach ice cream. So there's a little bit of craving there, you know? <laughs> I can see that, a little bit of craving. And at that point, I have an opportunity. I can, I can if, if I can't uh, 
go there and have the peach ice cream, am I going to be sad? Am I going to be upset? Am I going to be distressed? I'm going to decouple the craving um, from my experience. And that I think is part of in practice, settling down in practice. I mean, there's a, there's a point where we're just like ah, spinning, distracted ah, in practice, but there is a point when you practice long enough, when you just sort of settle down in practice and you know, oh, this is distracted mind. Oh, this is, you know, a restless mind today. Oh, this is sleepy mind today, whatever. You, it doesn't deter you and it doesn't disturb you. You're just settled down in practice. We settle down in practice, there's an opportunity to open a space where you can really reveal for yourself the ways in which your craving is promoting your own suffering. And this is not, I, this is, believe me, this is not to blame the victim. Um, you know, it's not to say, well, you know, if you feel bad, too bad for you, you should fix that inside or somehow, you know, but it's really to help us um, be, um, I think wise in the ways that we use our meditation as a, an opening for releasing suffering and, um, and the ways in which we can only do that by turning toward it. Yeah, so Vivian. Hi, um, I would like to understand better how we can, how we can train our minds to appreciate more the freedom of cravings how how we we can really grasp what is real freedom yeah well that's a um it's a kind of instrumentalist approach that has a cause and effect uh linear cause and effect question right how can i do x that i don't have y um as sort of that that's the frame that we fall into yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost automatic, um, but there are, but you can play with this. And one of the ways to play with it, and you need to, to be, um, to have the meditative capacity to look at your own experience. When you look at your own experience, um, look for moments when you notice a small scale, not a big bath, a small scale craving arise okay. and play with that just play with relinquishing it or play with delaying it or deferring it. Just play with it. It's just an experiment. What is, how does that change the system? How does that um, uh, create causes and conditions for different kinds of experience? So when we don't automatically seek to fulfill our desires, we become the masters of ourselves. Right. Right, so, um, so uh, toddlers operate entirely on impulse. Fortunately, um, our modern society operates just like toddlers. So this is, this is our challenge, right? Is not to be like toddlers, uh, but to be able to uh, examine, investigate where this craving arises, what is, a good exercise I use sometimes is I'll take a catalog for some catalog for things that I really like. And I turn a page by page and I look at what I'm attracted to. And then I look for what is the cause of that attraction. So I want to buy this sweater because the girl in the picture is standing next to a horse. Right? 
And I start to see what's, you know, how does this arise? How does this arise? So that's a little uh, way of investigating how that system works. You wanna understand for yourself how your systems of cravings arise. Um, so it's not so much about, can I get rid of all my cravings, which is another sort of, it does kind of violence to the system, but can I see clearly, really clearly the arising, the, the um, suffering that it creates, uh, the resolution of it and its disappearance. So meditation is great because we're sitting in stillness and silence, whatever's arising, we're not gonna react to. Um, you know, we're not gonna go to the kitchen and get a cup of tea or whatever. We're, <clears throat> we're gonna stay in stillness and silence. So we're not reacting uh, to the impulses that are arising. That's why it's important to make a really serious commitment not to get up even if you're sitting alone until the timer uh, you know, or until the end of the time. Um, you just have to make that commitment because that's how you develop the, the strength um, to really begin to work with craving. Yeah, I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah, it is very much. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. We often find that the cravings arise from a complex of things like I'm a little bored, I'm a little restless, um, I'll, I'll wander into the kitchen, <laughs> right? <laughs> so something, nothing's happening in here, but wait a minute, what's in the refrigerator? I mean, we're just like, uh, oftentimes it comes out of the sort of um, other factors that come together. I'm waiting for a phone call. I'm not sure if they're going to call or not. I'm a little anxious about it. You know, maybe I'll have a sandwich. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to avoid thinking about what you have to think about. Yeah, or experiencing what you're experiencing. To be able to say to yourself, you know, I, I, I do think this is a good part of the sort of Vipassana tradition is that they'll do naming of experience as it's arising. So, you know, naming... Um, uh, uh, restlessness is there, um, anger is there. Um, and there's something about that, just acknowledging, oh, that's there. It doesn't necessarily mean I have to do anything about it, right? right. And so that, that can be a kind of interesting practice. And I especially do that with the five hindrances because there's, it's so useful to know that, oh, torpor is taking me over, you know, like this is, so I'll just say, this is torpor. Um, or this is sense desire. I'm thinking about what I'm going to fix for lunch. This is sense desire arising. There's no moral judgment associated with those hindrances. They, they are hindrances to clarity of mind and to settling down, but um, nobody says that's a bad thing or you shouldn't do it or anything like that. It's just like, oh, recognizing that. Oh, it's like in the mind stream, that's like a branch that's fallen into the stream or a stone or boulder or something in the stream. Um, so that's how we understand it. So for me, it's been very helpful to name it. Oh, this is present. Anger is present. I see, you know. There's a, it has a calming effect. Just to yeah. be able to name it. That's true. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I see we're at the end of our time. Um, I will be very happy to see you next week. It'll be our last class. Um, and 
please bring any questions you have about anything we've talked about so far. We'll have time to really um, explore what your questions are. And, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about this um, dependent origination as we understand it. All right. Mm -hmm. Have a wonderful week.